Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and a very warm welcome to each and every one of you here tonight. My name is Mark Oakley, and I'm the Chancellor of St Paul's, and it is my privilege to simply welcome you and to introduce this important event. Last year, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, spoke under the dome here at a St Paul's Forum event and named what he believed to be one of the most urgent changes needed in the world, the development of a coherent, cooperative, international response to climate change. He went on to say that part of this will be to challenge the great fiction that our economic and business lives are somehow disconnected from this need for a critical and practical response. We find ourselves, after all, on a fragile globe where the rich world is disproportionately contributing to climate change and the poor world is disproportionately suffering the consequences. And so tonight's debate is important to the St. Paul's Institute, and we are as grateful as always to be working with CCLA, the Church Investors Group, and Shrinking the Footprint, the Church of England's national environmental campaign, in ensuring that communities of faith are more vocal about what is a theological and moral issue. But they are, at the same time, in complete partnership with as many others as there are. Because, of course, this issue challenges any lazy thought that human beings can somehow be loyal to their future alone, if that future is to be in any way sustainable. And being aware that you cannot just talk yourself out of something you have behaved yourself into. We wanted the highlighted word tonight to be action, the will for action, because debate such as this is only at the end of the day a throat-clearing exercise for what is really crucial, to stop this crisis going to waste and the world with it by learning the urgent necessity of cooperative decision and behaviour change. So we are very grateful indeed to Bishop James Jones, the former Bishop of Liverpool and respected broadcaster, for introducing tonight's eminent speakers and chairing this conversation. So a very warm welcome, and Bishop James, thank you, and over to you. <laughs> thank you very much, Mark. Last Monday evening, I was in Edinburgh addressing the Scotland 2020 Climate Group, which is an alliance of government, uh, NGOs, uh, faith groups, uh, and businesses. And I was asked to address the question as to why there had not been sufficient action, sufficient resolve to deal with climate change. I rather provocatively suggested that if the City of London and the Palace of Westminster had been flooded as many times as the Thames barrier has gone up in the last 10 years, there would indeed be more action taken uh, in London. It's therefore very fitting that here in the City of London, 
which the Thames barrier protects, we should, at the heart of this city and this nation, be addressing the question of building the will for action. As in every case of building the will, changing hearts and minds depends upon leadership. And before you this evening on this panel are people who are distinguished leaders in the field of climate change. Christiana Figueres, to whom I'll return in a moment, uh, she will give a lecture of about 20 minutes, after which each of the panel members will have the opportunity to respond. Thereafter, we will throw the discussion open to the floor. At any time during the lecture by Christiana or the responses, uh, you think of a question, then please do write it on the piece of paper that you have and simply raise your hand and one of the stewards will collect it from you. These questions will then be collated and when it's thrown open to the floor, uh, we'll be able, through the magic of this screen in front of me, uh, to deal with your questions. And I'll be calling you to come to the microphone at the back uh, in groups of three so that you can put your questions personally uh, to, to the panel. Christiana Figueres is the Executive Secretary of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, appointed in 2010 and uh, reaffirmed in her appointment in 2013. She's a Costa Rican diplomat and in 1995 she founded the Center for Sustainable Development of the Americas. On her blog following the 2014 World Economic Forum, Christiana has said that she believes that this year represents a major opportunity for a global step change in a world low-carbon economy. Responding to her will be Peter Pereira-Gray, who is Managing Director of Wellcome Trust Investment Division. He and his team manage approximately £16 billion worth of global investments. He'll be followed by Tony Jupiter, who in this generation is perhaps one of the most influential thinkers and writers on sustainability. From Friends of the Earth to the Prince of Wales and many international companies, Tony has made a major impact on thinking about sustainability. After Tony will come Neil Morizetti, who is Director of Strategy for UCL, their Science, Technology, Engineering and Public Policy. And previously, he was the UK Government's Climate and Energy Security Envoy. Ladies and gentlemen, these are the leaders before you. I now call upon Christiana to give her lecture. Please welcome her warmly. Thank you very much, Your Excellency James Jones, former Bishop of Liverpool. Good afternoon, good evening to all of you. Uh, my dear friend Rear Admiral Neil Morissetti, Dr. Tony Juniper, and uh, Peter Pereira Gray. Distinguished audience, but more than anything, dear friends, let me uh, thank St. Paul's Institute, the CCLA. Uh, the Church Investors Group, and the Shrinking Footprint for inviting me here today. I am humbled and honored to join you 
in St. Paul's Cathedral. Over the past 300 years, millions of citizens from this great city and around the world have gathered under these three magnificent domes to pray for moral courage to defeat some of the major injustices of our society. Slavery, apartheid, and equal rights for women, to name a few. Today, we gather here to raise our gaze above the horizon of daily climate change debate to set our moral compass on this, the most daunting challenge of the 21st century. Over the past 300 years, these spires have witnessed many changes in the global social and economic fabric. And today, we live in an unprecedented time in the history of mankind, already recognized as the Anthropocene era, when humans have the power, intentionally or not, to transform our planet Earth for ill or for good. At this moment in history, we have catapulted ourselves to a crossroads of two possible paths for mankind. We have developed the technology and amassed the financial capability to go in either direction. The direction we take cannot be the result of inertia, but must be the result of intentional choice. The time for that decision is urgently upon us. I suggest to you tonight that this choice will be informed by our technology, by our financial systems, and by our evolving policy, but that it also must be indisputably steered by the overarching moral compass innate to all of us. The crossroads I speak of is defined by science. Since 1988, the scientists of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change have aggregated all the peer-reviewed evidence of climate change. Their latest fifth assessment report leaves no room for doubt. And just so that we don't forget it, could you please take a few seconds to take a deep breath? Go ahead, take a deep breath. Now, those of us here tonight, together with all human beings alive right now, are the first human beings in the history of mankind to breathe air that has 400 parts per million of CO2. Has never occurred before in the history of mankind. That concentration has already caused an average temperature rise around the world of 0.8 degrees Celsius. The 12 hottest years on record have been in this century, and according to my calendar, we're only 14 years into the century. As a consequence, the frequency and intensity of natural disasters is increasing along with the economic costs everywhere. You will all remember the recent floods here in the UK and the cost up to 14 billion pounds in business losses. But you may not be aware that only a few weeks ago, the UK supermarket chain ASDA reported that 95% 
of its fresh produce is already at risk from climate change. You will all remember Hurricane Sandy in New York and the drought in the U.S. Midwest, collectively costing more than $100 billion. But you may not be aware that just yesterday, the U.S. government released a report showing how all areas of the United States are already affected by climate change. Those are a few examples of the current cost of climate change to industrialized countries, costs that would only escalate if action is delayed. However, the cost to developing countries is much higher and more painful in human terms. Superstore in Haiyan in the Philippines cost $14 billion in economic loss, and 4 million people are still displaced today. The 2010 floods in Pakistan cost $50 billion in displaced 20 million people. The recently released documentary Years of Living Dangerously shows the relationship between climate change-produced drought and the war in Syria. A few months ago, I walked in Tonga through villages swamped by saltwater intrusion, despite the fact that they are more than 900 feet away from the coast. And last week, I was in Nepal, when the tragic death of 13 Sherpas reminded all of us that the Himalayan glaciers are melting, weakening the snow and ice cover, and ultimately threatening the water supply of 20% of global population. Un checked, the rise in greenhouse gas emissions could increase global average temperatures by 3, 4, or maybe even 6 degrees centigrade, wiping out all social and economic advances over the past 25 years, and making it almost impossible for developing countries to adapt to new levels of disaster, destruction, and despair. However, no country is immune. Retired Brigadier General Chris King of the United States characterized climate change as equivalent to the risk of a global 100 years war with no exit strategy. The scientific data on climate change is overwhelming. The experience of the affected is overpowering. The few who still deny the science and argue for inaction, of course, have the right to hide their face in the sand, but the sand is warming rapidly and they will soon have to face their children. Fortunately, there are many, many citizens from all walks of life who have realized that we are at the fork in the road. They are helping to avoid the path of high risk and steer us toward the path of stability and prosperity. Collectively, we're building an intricate web of finance, technology, and policy solutions, and we can take a quick look at each of those. On finance, the global financial system has understandably, for many years, facilitated the exploration and use of fossil fuels. However, this is now beginning to change. One trillion dollars have been cumulatively invested worldwide in renewable energy, a step toward the annual trillion that is actually needed. More encouraging is the recent proliferation of actors in the finance space seeking better returns in a low-carbon future. Carbon disclosure of carbon risk exposure is increasingly required by investors. Institutional investors that serve pensioners and other beneficiaries are increasingly aware 
of the high risk of devalued assets and are moving capital away from potentially stranded assets. Just last week, the FTSE announced a fossil fuel free investment index and tomorrow, here in the city, the carbon tracker launches its report on the growing cost of oil investments. A growing number of financial institutions are issuing green bonds here in London, the finance hub of the world. The British government is organizing a global climate finance lab in early June, followed by a summit for all economic centers. And driven by courageous students, universities in the US, UK, and Australia are part of a growing movement to divest from fossil fuels. Here at St. Paul's, I would like to recognize that faith groups and churches around the world are joining this momentum. In the US, 12 religious institutions have divested from fossil fuel assets. The Congregation of Trinity St. Paul's in Toronto, Canada voted unanimously to divest. Multi-faith groups in Australia and North America sent a, a letter to Pope Francis stating that it is, quote, immoral to profit from fossil fuels. Right here in Britain, the UK Quakers have decided to divest part of their fossil fuel assets on ethical grounds. And recently, the Church of England's General Synod reaffirmed its commitment to address dangerous climate change and has launched a review of its fossil fuel investments. Many concentric circles are working toward finance options that shift much-needed capital toward clean technology. So, technology. I actually think that the most exciting progress is in the space of technology. Technology has transformed the world several times in the last hundred years, and it must do so again. Today, we stand on the verge of the deepest energy transformation human society has ever seen. And it has already started. The cost of solar and wind has dropped dramatically. Electric car sales are moving fast, and news about growing charging infrastructure is proliferating around the world, as well as the development of new battery technologies. Green building technology is moving towards sustainably produced materials and smart thermostats. And that is just the foundation. Larger opportunity comes from building on this foundation because a low carbon life is actually a better life. For those of you who work in the developing world, imagine a future where every developing country has all the clean power it needs to grow its economy and urgently improve the well-being for all helping to close the gap that exists to industrialized countries. Where two billion people who currently have no electricity can enjoy the comfort of light and power via a solar panel on their home. Where no woman has to cook on an open fire, but rather eliminate smoke from home and her children's lungs by cooking with a closed efficient stove. Further imagine, a world where energy can be stored personally instead of delivered to you, untethering you from power outlets, cables, and adapters, increasing your freedom and your mobility. Where electric cars charge through inductive power transfer from the roadway so you never have to stop to get fuel or even be electrically charged. Where intelligent buildings are capable of producing all the energy they need learning how to best use that energy over time to maximize your comfort and reduce your costs. These technologies are not fairy tales. 
we will see them sooner than we think. This is not just my optimism, for which I admit to be renowned. We already have the technology we need to keep us under the two-degree temperature rise. We just need policy and targeted finance to help deploy it. So policy. Policy is the third solution space, and it is fitting we meet in this magnificent church, because right now we are on a global policy pilgrimage. This pilgrimage takes us to Paris, France, where in late 2015, governments have agreed to adopt a new universal climate agreement. Every government has reiterated they want this agreement, and every government is on board and actively analyzing their domestic contribution with a commitment to have a draft agreement ready by this December for review in Lima, Peru. I believe that an international agreement is possible because of the foundations emerging at the national level. We now have 500 climate change laws in 60 countries covering 80% of global emissions. New carbon pricing systems are opening in notable markets like China and California. The US Supreme Court has just ruled that the government can regulate emissions from coal-fired stations and EPA is on track to do so. The EU is on track to generate 20% of its energy from renewables by 2020. And here in the UK, 100,000 people are now employed in the renewable energy sector and growing. The growth in clean energy is not just happening in developed countries. China and India are emerging clean energy markets, and small countries and island states are generating power from geothermal, wind, and solar. Cities such as New York and Cape Town, South Africa, are investing heavily in resilient infrastructure. And local communities are also moving right here in the UK. Take the Hackney and Brixton Community Energy Co-ops, which aim to create renewable energy and low-carbon projects. Much action is underway to underpin the likelihood of the global agreement. The question, however, is whether this agreement will be strong enough to bend the currently rising curve of emissions. If we are to stay, under a two-degree temperature rise, we must peak global emissions in the next six to 10 years and reach carbon neutrality in the second half of the century, leaving most of the fossil fuel reserves in the ground, a tall order from where we stand today. We already know that the sum total of what countries can currently do does not sum up to the necessary level of emission reductions. That is why the 2015 agreement must both effectively harvest all possible current efforts and chart the long-term course toward carbon neutrality. Here, my friends, is where all play an important role. Yes, leadership from presidents and prime ministers, mayors and captains of technology and finance is crucial to transform our economy. But leadership is also required from individuals and from faith-based organizations, north and south, east and west, in order to build the courage, the confidence, the political space, and the urgency for accelerated action. We have the funding, the technology, and the policy to address climate change and give us a safer, more prosperous future. The progress toward low carbon will prevail because of the many compelling benefits. My concern is timing. If we do not have a strong agreement, a strong draft this year, if we're not able to attain a strong agreement next year, if we do not bend the emissions curve this decade, 
we face unprecedented systemic risks to the global population and economy. So why are we lagging behind in the timely response? Why are we not using every option to peak global emissions and descend to carbon neutrality in the second half of the century? I can and I often do make a strong argument about the complexity of this transformation. And it is very true. But today, in these hallowed halls, I would like to evoke one element that is missing. That one element, dear friends, is one we all harbor. It is the one most dear to every human being, no matter where we were born or which faith we practice. Quite simply, it is love. Love for ourselves, our children and their children. Love for our neighbors across the globe. Love for our common home, the earth. I'm not talking about feeble love. I'm referring to tough love, the love that is strong enough to make tough decisions because we know it is the right thing to do, because we understand that ultimately we're all interrelated, interwoven with one another and with this planet which we cannot replace. I'm certain that all of us here today harbor more love than we are currently expressing toward the future of our children and our planet. My challenge to you tonight is not to walk out of St. Paul saying, that was interesting, or even, that was inspiring. I invite you to walk out resolved to add one concrete action to what you're already doing to further express your love and your commitment as an individual, because we cannot ask others to do what we have not done ourselves. And just to help you out, let me give you a little menu of choices. Eliminate food waste and eat less meat or go vegetarian. Walk, bike, use public transport. Replace inefficient lighting or install a solar panel. Request carbon neutral goods. Request carbon labeling. Support renewable energy projects in your community. Tell your MP or your local council leaders you want a strong international agreement in Paris and more action on home. Ask your pension fund managers how they are addressing stranded assets. Ask your churches and religious institutions to align their financial assets with their spiritual assets. And if prayer or meditation is your contribution, join a new movement called OurVoices.net, which aims to trigger reflection across faiths everywhere around the globe. Those are some of the many actions each of us can do to set our own moral compass and open economic and political space for governments and corporations to do more. Dear friends, for the first time in history, we human beings have the power to alter the physical foundations of life on this planet. But as ever throughout history, we also have the responsibility to set the ethical foundation of our global society. We have done this with slavery and with apartheid. It is time to do it with climate change. We are the first generation to understand the consequences of a high carbon economy on the planet, on future prosperity, and above all, on the most vulnerable around the world. Let us be the generation that stands up to this responsibility. Mahatma Gandhi wisely warned us that the future depends on what we do in the present. Dear friends, St. Paul's is a beloved and lasting symbol of the determination 
and strength of the City of London and the UK. Gathered here today, let us renew our determination to tackle the daunting but solvable challenge of climate change. Gathered here today, let us decide to marshal our individual and collective strength to show through our actions and our decisions our love to ourselves, to our children, to our grandchildren, and to all our neighbors across the globe. Or, as I would have said way back in my days at a good British boarding school, let's just blooming well get on with it. Your Excellency, thank you very much for such a comprehensive tour of the subject and also one that is personally challenging and yet still optimistic. I'm going to ask now uh, Peter Pereira Gray if he will respond and speak from his own particular neck of the woods, which is the world of finance. And while Peter's gathering his thoughts, if you've got questions, please, or comments, please do write them down, put your hand up, and somebody will come and collect them from you. Thank you very much. Peter. Bishop, Christiana, Tony, Neil, ladies and gentlemen, it really is a great privilege and an honor to stand here this evening. Let me respond indeed uh, with an investor perspective and with the practical role that Wellcome Trust is seeking to play in this important discussion. You will hear as I speak that we are a different actor on the same stage admittedly, but we are working with the same goal in mind as Christiana. There are an awful lot of things that I agree with in Christiana's speech. The role of finance, the role of technology, the role of policy, and indeed the role of love. But it should not be a great surprise to you that for some of the conclusions that I draw are subtly different from those which others who have looked at this debate are drawing. So let me try and explain. Wellcome Trust is a charity with a vision to drive extraordinary improvements in human health. This means that we seek to address and identify the contemporary and the future threats to health. We are quite clear that the environment and sustainability and climate change specifically is one of the great threats of our time. We agree on the need for action. Indeed, understanding the connections between the environment, nutrition and health are one of our five key research challenge areas, exploring, for example, nutrition, urbanization, sanitation, and the health impacts of climate change. We already make a series of research grants in this area. We are, of course, acutely aware of our own influence. We require our grantees to take action to reduce their carbon footprints, and we are, of course, looking to reduce our own carbon footprint. Then there, of course, is our investment portfolio, upon which we rely to fund the things that we do. We are a long-term investor, which means that we might hold our investments for a very long time, and that 
gives us a significant interest in environmental stewardship. There are some who think that this sort of stewardship isn't compatible with investing in businesses which produce fossil fuels. We sympathise with those aims of those who take that position. We think carefully about them, but we do not share them today. Our endowment is our only source of income, and thus our spending. Last year, we gave away approximately £750 million in pursuit of that mission. And if we constrain our ability to generate investment return, we constrain the ability to fund our mission. So we have a presumption against constraining that opportunity set. We do make one exception, and that is for tobacco. And that's really quite straightforward, really, because there's no way of consuming or selling tobacco which is compatible with our mission of advancing health. But we don't find the fossil fuel question anything like as straightforward. We invest where there's an identifiable demand, and we need to invest in assets that protect us from the adverse impacts of inflation, lest our ability to fulfill our mission is eroded over time. This means we invest in drivers of global economic activity, and therefore the energy industry. Because of who we are, we cannot justify refusing to invest in a sector when that sector supplies such a vital human need and is such a significant element of our global economy. Every company, every individual is a consumer of fossil fuels. We all drive demand. We honestly find it functionally impossible to avoid investing in companies that derive a material turnover from fossil, fun, fossil fuels, for all of them do, directly or indirectly. We do not, therefore, draw a distinction between the companies that use and drive demand and those that supply them. Especially so, we feel that would be wrong, when so many of them today are strongly committed to innovating in supplying that demand as sustainably as possible. But please be assured, we fully understand the need to behave very responsibly as an investor. And so we use our access to the company boardroom to advise and to engage with directors about the importance of sustainable and responsible environmental policies. That is not lip service. We really are doing that. If we were to sell our holdings today in the producers of fossil fuels, we fear that the buyers would exert less influence than we might be able to do ourselves. We do think it is very important for a company to maintain its license to operate. If a company fails to maintain a license to operate, it feeds straight through to franchise value, in our opinion, and we would take that as an indicator to sell. And when that does occur, that is indeed what we do. But there is a further dimension and uh, it's probably the most important, and it is fully supportive of what Christiana has said to us a little earlier. As a major global investor, Wellcome is a leading supporter of venture capital and innovation. And a number of the companies and investments that we have made are in companies that are seeking to create alternative sources of energy for the world. Here, we're acting as a primary source of capital directly to the companies, Rather than as we do as shareholders, owning the shares in companies that are listed on the stock exchange but have already raised their capital. 
These companies include, for example, those that are seeking to make fuel from algae and low-cost sugars. We are even exploring nuclear fusion. All of these come with a substantially lower carbon footprint than the traditional hydrocarbons. Algae actually consumes carbon, which is surely exactly what we're looking for today. Now, these are not pipe dreams, but they are technologies that really work to the, test, to the extent that we've tested them today, but also, I have to say, they're very high-risk businesses when they're at the development stage. Each of them is a crucial piece of the jigsaw puzzle that I believe is the solution to the world climate change and energy problem, especially the carbon-consuming technologies. But because not all of these are going to be successful, we need a strong capital base from which to invest. We need a strong knowledge-seeking and risk-taking culture to do so. If some of these companies are successful, as we believe and ultimately hope they will be, we will all have new sources of sustainable fuel, reduced carbon emissions, new sources of investment return, and more knowledge with which to feed better understanding with the existing fossil producers and consumers. Now, I believe that the ultimate owner of many of these new technologies is going to be what we once called the oil companies, what today we call the fossil fuel producers, and tomorrow and in the future we will call the energy companies because they will shift their operations with the pressures that Christiana and we bring to bear to be more sustainable and more environmentally acceptable. We want to be there to promote that change. We believe that we will do that best by being a shareholder. If society's long-term participants are not to do this, I ask you, who will? Building a will for action, then, in our view, would be best targeted at speeding up the rate of innovation and the adoption of new fuel technologies, and, of course, influencing and reducing the rate of demand. So you see, that is what we are doing in trying to address this very real and complex issue. Perhaps because Wellcome Trust has a unique identity and character, um, you can see why I take a slightly different approach to the issues Christiana put on the table. We are giving away millions of pounds a year in research grants to top quality researchers, specifically to explore the effects of environmental change on health. We are influencing the companies we deal with to become more environmentally efficient and promoting their change. We meet our fiduciary responsibilities as investors by pursuing a balanced portfolio approach, including investing directly in new energy technologies to find new sources of investment, return, and energy solutions. But of course, climate change is not the only challenge facing humankind. And so all of the investment returns that Wellcome Trust earn are reinvested back into society, funding more scientific research to find more environmental and sustainable healthcare solutions for all. It's a lofty ambition indeed. Some of you may say it's a dream, but I can say to you this evening genuinely, it's a dream that I try to live every day. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have been, thank you for listening.
Peter, thank you very much. As uh, Neil goes to the uh, lectern, can I just say to those people who want to use Twitter this evening to get your comment or question, it's hashtag climate action. That's all you need to get your Twitter question or comment. And any other written ones, please do just put your hands up and the stewards will collect. Please, Neil. Bishop James, Christiana, Peter, Tony, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for inviting me tonight. But I suspect some of you are wondering what is a member of the security community or a bit of a retired member on the panel with these people? Climate change, the military, they're not words that traditionally go in the same sentence, particularly as there's no security solution to climate change. But from my perspective, I'm very happy to be here, and it's perfectly natural, because the issue Christiana's been talking about is an issue that affects global stability, and that is the business of the security community. Increasingly, we are seeing that the impact of a changing climate, whether it be as a result of extreme weather events or the onset of long-term trends, is impacting on all aspects of our life, wherever we live. The evidence is increasingly compelling, be it scientific or be it what we see out of the window, the tractor, the farmer from the tractor, driver win, tractor window, the sailor from the bridge window, the publican from the pub window, we are seeing the evidence of a changing climate. And that evidence includes the risks that it is posing to geopolitical stability, something which underpins everything we do. It is not an end state in itself. It's a precondition. It's a precondition for sustained economic growth. It's a precondition for well-being, good health, alleviation of poverty, and many other things. Climate change is clearly not the only risk posed to geopolitical stability. You've just got to pick up the newspapers and look at the television today to see others. But it's one that more and more people are becoming aware of. We saw it in the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Working Group 2 report released in March. Last year, Admiral Sam Lockyer of the United States Navy, who heads up Pacific Command, a multi-agency military, foreign affairs and international aid group based in Hawaii, was asked, what is the greatest threat to security for the Asia-Pacific region? And everyone sat there with bated breath waiting for him to talk about China, North Korea. The greatest long-term threat in his mind is climate change. And my old boss, William Haig, right from the outset of Foreign Secretary, said climate change is probably the greatest foreign policy challenge we face in the 21st century. Now, that is not to say that climate change is likely to be the sole cause or the direct cause of a conflict. The causes of the conflict are complex. What is much more likely is it's going to act as a threat multiplier. It's going to increase the risk of instability and conflict, particularly in those areas where stresses such as food shortages, water shortages, health problems, demographic challenges already exist. And it's very pertinent when it poses a risk to those essential supplies of food, energy and water that we all require. It's the second and third order co consequences. What happens when people lose their land or their livelihood because rising temperatures reduce the yields of crops, wheat, rice, sea levels have risen, they've lost their land, their home or their farm, 
Increased acidity in the ocean means the fish stocks have moved away or been depleted. All of that is predominantly happening today in a belt that runs around the world, north and south of the equator, from Central America, Mesoamerica, through Africa, the Indian subcontinent, and into Asia. Parts of the world where those other stresses I've described exist, and parts of the world where we've seen conflict in the past, and we'll see it again. Frequently, because the governments of those nations do not have the capacity and resilience to look after their populations. Now, sitting here in London, or in Europe, or in America, you could say, this is distressing, but it's someone else's problem. I've got other things to worry about. Well, that misses out one key fact. We live in a globalized world where events thousands of miles away will affect us just as much as they do those who are directly affected. Through that belt run the supply chains for business, the trade routes, the sea lanes. Many of the raw materials we need are in those belts, in the countries in those belts, or that belt. And perhaps most importantly, the emerging markets, the markets that we are dependent upon for the growth of our economy, are in that area as well. Instability, volatility in those areas can impact our economies. Think about the Russian wheat failures in 2010. The impact of that was felt in the markets in Tunisia. It was a contributing factor, the price of bread, to the Arab Spring, which led to conflict in Libya. The price of oil rose by $20 a barrel. Two quarters of $20 a barrel price rise is half a percent off GDP. The floods in Thailand in 2011 not only affected the Thai population, rice yields, the price of rice, but if you were a car worker in Swindon, you went on a three-day working week because components manufactured in Thailand could not get to Swindon to complete the cars. You couldn't get a laptop in Orange County, California, or in Poland. The impact of a globalized world. So what does this mean for the security community? Well, like any other sector, it has to understand what climate change means for their business. What does it mean for national security? What does it mean for missions and tasks? Will people, the military be required to do more humanitarian assistance and disaster relief? Will it happen more frequently? Where will it happen? What skills will be needed? And how available do those skills need to be? Will they be required to do capacity building, help develop the resilience of societies to meet these challenges? For example, to teach a Coast Guard to manage its exclusive economic zone, its fish stocks, its resources. Have they got the right capabilities to do that? Have they got the right equipment? Is it sustainable? Is it resilient? Is the way they use energy sustainable? Not today. The biggest consumer of energy in the world is the US military. And most countries, you'll find the military of that country is one of the major energy consumers. But perhaps most importantly, and here I come to Christiana's point about voices, the military need to articulate these issues. They need to add their voice to the others, talking about what the impact of a changing climate means. But not just the threats, but also the opportunities and the benefits of a low-carbon, clean-tech society. Whether it be through strategies, strategic defence and security view in this country, whether it be through think tanks, whether it be through bodies of retired and serving military officers, whether it be single voices, a group of voices, or voices between the military 
the business, faith, health and other sectors. We need to talk about this. We need to persuade both political leaders and society that this is a mainstream issue. It's not a niche issue, it's a mainstream issue that needs to be treated just the same way we treat any other risk or threat to prosperity and well-being around the world. Security strategies, energy strategies, urban development strategies, health strategies, economic strategies have to include the impact of a changing climate. If they're not included, it's a flawed strategy. And as I said, we need to treat this as a mainstream issue and understand how we manage the risks. There is, as I said at the beginning, no security solution to climate change. But if you don't address it, and we don't talk about the need to address it, we increase the risk of instability and of conflict. If we do act to address it, not only do we reduce those threats and risks, but we increase the benefits, the opportunities of economic growth, prosperity, well-being and good health. And I would suggest that's something that's worth speaking up about and it's worth speaking up about now. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you. Neil, thank you very much for giving us the security perspective. Remember, hashtag climate action for Twitter and any more questions. It's good to see a lot flowing. Tony. Thank, thanks very much in, indeed, James. It's a great pleasure to be able to share a few reflections here this evening on this important subject of build, building the will for action on climate change. I have to say that listening to Christiana's um, opening remarks, I was taken back to the early 1990s and reflecting on the longevity of this issue as, as a matter of uh, public debate. And it's really, literally, uh, getting on for a quarter of a century now that we've had headlines and discussions around climate change. And I think with that in mind, one of the key questions that we need to address is why we're not doing more given what we know about both the problem and also the potential solutions. And certainly looking back on the years that I've been involved with this, I think a big part of the problem is that the question is, is multi-layered. It's a moral issue, as Christiana said. It's a technological question, as, as Peter pointed out. It's a security matter, as Neil just highlighted. It's a scientific question and around the confidence we can have around scenarios relating to different concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. It's a technological question and a big argument about the kinds of responses. Should we go down the nuclear route? Should we go down the renewables route? And of course, it's a huge political question made worse in recent years by the politicization of climate change in a number of key countries, including this one, the United States, Australia, and Canada. It's turned into a party political issue. And if you look at all those different dimensions of climate change, there's conflict in all of them, from the science to the politics to the technologies. And of course, that creates a very difficult environment to move forward. And if you look at the way in which the subject is talked about in the media and in political discussions, it is usually a set of negative connotations that come with climate change. It's presented as too expensive to deal with. It's presented as a doom-laden threat. It comes with enormous amounts of guilt, especially for middle-class people who maybe fly quite a lot. It's sometimes presented as anti-development and against the interests of poor people. And if you add all that together, it's something that pushes people away from the solutions. Not only is it complicated, 
Not only are the causes and effects remote in time and geography, it's something that really doesn't encourage people to engage because it sounds like a pretty bad thing, even in terms of what the solutions might be like. And I think in looking forward in terms of how we start to break this, I think a major reframing of the climate change issue is needed. We need to stop this being seen as an automatically negative set of challenges and reframe it as being a multi-layered opportunity. And some of those points have already been made by fellow panelists this evening. We can paint a very strong and compelling picture around why action on climate change is very good for people's health. It's a very good public health agenda going low carbon. Whether that's about diet or more exercise or avoiding the spread of disease, there's a very good news story to be told there. It's good for jobs and competitiveness. Retooling the global economy to be low carbon for 9 billion people is the biggest business opportunity that's ever been presented to the world. An opportunity for technology forcing growth, jobs, development worldwide. It's good for security and stability. It's good for conservation and it's good for water and food security. We've got all the information we need to be able to paint that picture. And I think at the top of my list at the moment is to be able to do that in a way where we bring more people into the conversation because it looks like a very good thing to deal with rather than something that's very frightening and very negative. So that's at the top of my list in terms of how we deal with this. Then, of course, we need to deal with some of the vested interests. The fossil fuel companies listening to this evening and the idea that they need to leave the fossil fuels in the ground, they do not like that message and they're not going to do it. And most of the people who've invested in those organizations think the same thing. The money is following the fossil fuels because they're very profitable. It's seen like an economic essential, an economic necessity that we back coal, oil and gas. That's the narrative they've managed to embed in the world of policymaking and indeed in the world of finance. Breaking that particular frame, I think, could be helped if we had some of the other economic sectors who are not fossil fuel companies, but who will be paying the price of the consequences of burning the fossil fuels. Some of the world's largest organizations are oil companies, that's for sure. Some of the world's even bigger companies are food companies and some very big companies in the water sector. Where is their voice in all of this? Can they be encouraged to come out and to hear from the world's food producers that going low carbon is essential for the continuity of their businesses. I think that would be a very interesting addition to the conversation. And when it comes to new voices, I think we need a more mainstream narrative for all of this, as Neil just said. Where can that come from? I have my history working for environmental groups. That's been good, but it's not enough. We need more mainstream organizations talking about the need for action, talking about the positive opportunities that could come from this. And in this place this evening, I'm undoubtedly going to highlight the importance of the faith communities, not just the Christian faith, but all the other faiths and the ways in which they can reach literally billions of people across the world. There have been some dabblings, I think, from the faith community, but not yet the clear, strong, moral narrative that needs to go alongside the science and the policymaking. And then, of course, the public. In the end, governments know that they're going to get re-elected and they're going to be able to craft a popular mandate if they're appealing to the people. Climate change has fallen off the agenda in this country, it's fallen off the agenda in other countries. And as we approach key elections in different parts of the world, one wonders how we're going to be able to get climate change back up there, 
which is something that the politicians are talking about in advance of elections and encouraging the people to vote for them because they've got the most ambitious and strongest climate change policies. That comes and goes. We saw a very good example of how that can work in this country between 2005 and 2008, when it was my privilege to be leading Friends of the Earth at the time of the Climate Change Act going through Parliament. That was an incredible piece of public mobilisation that connected with politics, and we need much more of that. And my final point in just thinking through a few of the headings around how we break the negativity and how we get the public mobilisation and the engagement is the role of the media. We've had this incredible volt fuss in the coverage in this part of the world in recent years, with the science now being under relentless attack, the solutions endlessly being criticised. The Daily Mail carried a headline today attacking the wind industry once more. Does anybody in this room know any of those editors, and can we make any kind of case to them as to the moral responsibility they have to be telling the truth about this most important subject? Thanks very much indeed. Tony, thank you for that uh, passionate conclusion to the panel's contributions. We're now going to throw the debate open to the floor. I'm going to ask now Philip Baldwin, David Dewhurst and Isabel Carter if they'll please group around the microphone in the centre aisle. And while they're coming to the microphone, we've got a Twitter question from Jeff Archer who asks, how can corporations best be engaged? I'm going to ask Christiana and then to Peter. Christiana. Um, the fact is that corporations are very engaged. And we have, I, I would say, broadly speaking, two types of corporations. Those that uh, see the huge opportunity with the new technologies and have been investing in the development of the new technologies of either renewable energy or energy efficiency or uh, clean transportation, the whole set, who are very engaged because they see that this is a huge opportunity and very profitable for them and they are helping to develop policy. And then we have other corporations that are also engaged, which are the corporations that are protecting their fossil fuel assets. I can't tell you how warming it is to get constant calls from the fossil fuel companies who call me to report to me the good things that they're doing. So they will call me and they will say, Ms. Ficaris, we just want you to know that we're actually investing in carbon capture and storage because we know that all of the existing fossil fuel plants will have to have fossil fuel, uh, will have to have carbon ca capture and storage. Or they will call me and they will say, well, actually, you know, we're tr in on this transition. We don't really want to call ourselves a fossil fuel company anymore. We want to call ourselves an energy company. And we're investing, for example, Saudi Aramco and Saudi Arabia, we're investing hugely in renewable energy, particularly solar. So the fact is corporations do know that the change is afoot and many of them are actually leading the way. Some of them are also lobbying against policy and those are the ones with which I have a problem. Thank you, Christiana. Just a one sentence comment, please, Peter, on that question about how can corporations be engaged? 
So I honestly believe it is helpful to sit alongside those corporations uh, at this point, uh, use the language they use of finance, of productivity, of efficiency, and in supporting what Christian has just said, articulate with them that there is a better way. Okay, we're going to take the three questions together, starting with Isabel, please. Isabel Carter. Yeah, Isabel, Isabel Carter, Operation NOAA. Um, Christiana, you said that we have reached a crucial crossroads for the future of humankind, and the choice we make must not be the result of inertia. What response would you like to see from our church leaders, our faith leaders, and what would make the greatest impact? Thank you. And then let's take Philip, please. Christiana, you talked about resetting our moral compasses. I wonder how we can influence the leaders of the United States, China, India, and Brazil to reset their moral compasses to deal with global climate change. American society seems unwilling to abandon its affluence while the Chinese, Indians, and Brazilians seem bent on matching the consumption levels of people in the first world. Thank you. And David, please. Surveys show increasing popular uncertainty has been generated lately due to the challenges of so-called climate skeptics particularly about the alleged static surface temperature for the last 17 years. What easily digestible reposts can we provide to such selective data? Okay, great questions there. I'm going to ask if Christiana will address the first two, which is about moral compass and about the response from faith leaders, and then I'll bring in Neil to deal with the question from you, David, about what one-line answers to the skeptics. Christiana. Um, with respect to uh, church leadership or faith leadership, uh, because it goes beyond church, um, I do think that there is uh, a huge opportunity to... Uh, include in the teachings to uh, followers of all different faiths the responsibility, the, A, the urgency and the threat that we have here on our doorstep and the responsibility that we all share to change our personal uh, behavior and also to change uh, the way in which we manage our own finances as well as the way that we manage the finances of the religious organizations. So we have to be consistent. We cannot walk and not talk or talk and not walk. We have to do both things together. With respect to the other countries, I actually have good news. Uh, I mentioned that the United States government very intentionally actually is doing all the research that they need to do to bring the US population on board because it is the intent of President Obama to be much more serious about climate change and about his contribution or his administration's contribution. He needs to bring the population on board and he is educating them. The Chinese, they are currently doing the analysis 
to let them uh, decide and publicly announce when they are going to peak their emissions, and that will happen within the next 10 years. That is a major step for China because China is the most heavily consuming coal country in the world, but they understand their responsibility. They also understand that they don't want to see the air that they're breathing because that is their current situation. So they are uh, getting ready to peak and to move away uh, from, the, from coal as heavily as they are. Brazil has contributed more than any other country, more than any other country in reducing deforestation, which is the Brazilian responsibility they have a very, very clean energy matrix, so they do not contaminate uh, the air with their, with their energy, but they do uh, have deforestation, and they have brought that down. With India, we don't know yet. Elections are still underway. Thank you, Christiana. Neil, one-liners for the skeptics who say that this is all alarmism. Um, you can always be selective with science and data. You can, you can just draw out of what you want. I think there are three quick things we can do. One, we need to encourage those in the scientific community who are researching the impact on the background of climate change to be prepared to talk about it. It's no good just saying the science will speak for itself. They've got to speak up. We can turn it into perhaps more common and understandable language. If 97 doctors tell you there's something wrong with you, it's probably better to listen to 97 than the odd one who says you're okay. And also, we've got to talk about the degree of confidence. This isn't 100% certainty. You never have 100% certainty on any threat. As a retired American general said, if we waited for 100% certainty on the battlefield, we'd probably be dead. If I told you there's a 10% chance of a bomb in this room, you'd expect something to be done about it. Why should we apply a higher level of certainty to this than any other threat that we face to our well-being and safety? Neil, thank you. Now, can Mark Campanale, Alastair Alexander and Rodrigo Matabuene please come to the microphone? And I'm going to ask if Tony will just very briefly address that question about how do we deal with the sceptics. And then I'll take a Twitter question from Ben Harland before we then go to our next contributors. So, so on that specific point of this so-called pause that some of the sceptics have seized upon, as I understand it, there's really three arguments to put back to them. The first thing is to point out that the air temperature record is only one part of the climate system that's being measured. If you look at the oceans, you can build a very strong case to say that actually the heat is being absorbed there, at least temporarily. The second thing to say is that in any event, taking just the short period that they're looking at is not sufficient to make any comment at all about the long-term trend, which is still warming up. And then the third thing to say is that the global average masks a lot of regional differences, uh, for example, in the Arctic, which is warming up very quickly. So they, they've picked on one little piece and they've presented it out of context. But if you look at the context from the scientists, you can very quickly make a very strong argument back to them. Okay, now, Peter, here's a Twitter question for you from Ben Harland. How is the vision of sustained economic growth compatible with sustainable global relationship with the environment? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, whilst we have the energy companies in the uh, serious position they are at the heart of our economic activity, we desperately need to change their role. I believe that role will change, and in dialogue I have with them, they are recognizing that. And if it is the case, as I 
propose to you that they will become the solution to the problems that we have, the owners of the new technologies, as we push them to do that, there is your compatibility. Yes, they are a problem today, but then the bigger problem, frankly, is not the suppliers, it's the demand, and we are all part of that. But I believe that they will become the solution, and that makes them compatible with uh, our economy. I wish we had all night to debate that particular answer. Uh, let's now go to uh, Mark Campanale, Alice Alexander, and Rodrigo Matabuene. Can we have your three questions together, please? I'd like to ask each panellist, um, what is the single thing you would want to see happen to arrest climate change? Thank you. Um, given that the largest, six of the largest uh, companies in the world, six of the largest ten companies in the world are oil companies, and that those companies' value is entirely based or overwhelmingly based on their reserves, and those reserves are enough to vastly exceed the amount of carbon we can possibly burn, can we not conclude that our global capitalist system is betting the farm on irreversible climate change and therefore that that current capitalist system is wholly incompatible with doing anything about climate change? Thank you very much. My question is to Christiana. This is regarding about the 2015 agreement in the context of uh, emission trading schemes, specifically about the clean development mechanism, what is your perspective about it? Will it emerge as a, as, a as, a, as a vehicle to reinvest in clean technology in, in the developing world? Or is, is that for good as it is right now? Thank you very much. I'm going to, because of the applause, uh, go back to that question which was hinted at in the answer that Peter gave. It's about the incompatibility of global capitalism with action on climate change. I'm going to ask each of the panelists now to respond briefly to that particular point, because clearly it's scratching where people itch tonight. So, Neil, Christiana, Tony, and then Peter. Very brief responses. Neil. I think Tony answered that question when he said that converting the, the global economy to a low-carbon, clean-tech economy was the greatest opportunity for business available today. Or I paraphrase his words. In other words, the opportunities for business and the commercial world in, in moving to a low-carbon society easily outweigh the risks and the costs. Thank you. Christiana? I think the, there is a self-definition here of winners and losers. There will be winners and there will be losers in this transformation. But in particular, the fossil fuel companies have the huge opportunity to decide which side are they going to be on. Those that do not move will be on the side of the losers. But those that do move and that do invest in their new technologies, they are going to be on the side of the winners. So they have the choice. Tony? In answer to the question, uh, is the current capitalist system incompatible with action on climate change? Yes, it is. The question then is what to do about it. Do we abandon capitalism? I don't think we can. I don't think there's time to invent a new system to be able to do what's needed. 
And so I would say that this is really a question of measurement and having the right numbers because our capitalist system at the moment, it basically measures a very narrow and crude financial and GDP version of success and it excludes the environmental and social consequences of that GDP-led growth. We need to measure the social and the environmental piece and we need to invent the economic tools that enable those things to be maximized, not only the financial side, that is a very active discussion. It's under the heading of natural capital, triple bottom line reporting, integrated reporting. There's a great effort going into that right now, and I think probably the thing that needs to happen is for that intellectual capital to be turned into policies that can start to measure things differently. And I think the most powerful advocates of that would be the heads of corporations and the head of the financial institutions who should be arguing for that different version of capitalism, because in the end, it's in their interest most of all. Thank you. An extra point, Peter. Uh, no. No, that's... Um, the panel were asked for one single thing to do. So, again, from right to left. A recognition that addressing climate change is an issue of today and not tomorrow. Put a price on carbon. A multilateral effort equivalent to the Manhattan Project or the Apollo Programme for Renewable Energy innovation uh, or investment in innovation for new carbon consuming technologies. They exist, they need a lot of money. Uh, I know today exactly how to produce oil above ground using carbon dioxide and sunlight. It produces uh, exactly what we need to drop into the distilleries and the refineries that the major oil uh, producers have today. It works, at least in our laboratories. But to get it onto a scale that makes a difference, it needs a lot of money. I believe there is an answer. It's 70% more efficient than that which we work with today. Um, that's my answer. Innovation and technology. Thank you. I'm going to ask Christiana now to address the question about mechanism while I ask for the final three questioners to come to the microphone. Amanda Root, Kate Allardyce, and Cohen Tharmanantha. If you could come to the microphone, and Christiana, could you answer that question about the mechanism? The clean development mechanism is currently uh, the, uh, the agreed market of uh, emission reductions between industrialized countries and developing countries. It is currently in a slump. The price has gone down because there is not enough commitment on the part of the industrialized countries to reduce their emissions to the point where they actually create a demand for emission reductions. Do I think that this is going to continue to be the case? No. I do believe that in the context of the 2015 agreement, we will have to have market systems with an S at the end uh, in order to be most cost-effective about emission reductions worldwide. So I do think that there is going to be a role for the CDM, a niche role. It will not be the monopoly of the market as it is now. There will be a niche role, and there will be the growth of other market systems, as we already are seeing in many countries around the world, that hopefully will be linked with each other and standardized across all of the asset classes as soon as possible. Thank you. As we come to our last three questions, can I say especially to those who've found it difficult to hear. All the contributions tonight have been recorded, and in a few days' time, they'll be available on the St. Paul's Institute website. So hopefully, 
all is not lost. Let's take the question now from Amanda, followed by Kate and then Kohan. Um, thank you for your interesting talks. How can climate change be addressed without addressing social inequalities? In other words, how can we expect people who are experiencing poverty to support spending on the environment? Thank you. And Kate? Yeah, how can you see the role of advocating a principle of global sharing of the world's resources um, as a way out of the problems we face um, to create uh, trust, social justice and lasting peace? Thank you. And uh, the last by Kohan, please. Um, in a world dominated by economics, how are we going to persuade people, policymakers, and corporations of the value of love? Well, Cristiano, you talked love. about love. love. So uh, why don't you deal with that question, and I'll spread the other two questions uh, with the rest of the panel. The value of love. I don't think there's any human being alive whether they follow a religious practice or not, whether they are the CEO of a corporation, the president of a country, or a person who with dignity is cleaning the streets of our cities, who does not value love. It is the most important fundamental sentiment that we human beings have for each other. The challenge is not to identify the value of love. The challenge is to understand that love does not finish in the very narrow circle of those that we know and that are in our family circles. That is the challenge, and that is one that I pose to you to help us with. What's been interesting in the discussion this evening is that nobody, as far as I've heard anyway, has mentioned the word justice. And that's been hinted at in these questions. So let me ask the other three panelists to address the previous two questions and ask, where does justice come into all this debate? Tony. I, I, the, just dealing with those two questions around the inequalities and sharing of resources, um, it seems to me that probably the, 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 the threat that's up there with climate change as a global source of tension and possibly uh, serious disaster is inequality alongside climate change. This seems to me to be the thing that is driving so many other things that are going wrong, uh, whether it's levels of crime, depression, uh, environmental damage, and there's a great deal of literature out there on that as well. And I think we need to be making the case that this problem, the, the question was, how can climate change be addressed without dealing with social inequalities? It probably can't be. We do have to have this as part of the same conversation. And if you look at some countries that are environmental leaders and talk to their politicians, one comes to mind is Sweden. Having spoken to politicians there and asking them, how are you managing to do so much on these questions compared to my country, the simple answer comes back, because we are more equal. 
We're in it together. We can do things together. And I think this is a, a, a neglected part of the conversation. And it is a moral question. It is a question of justice. But I must add, there's a ton of data out there that tells us why promoting more social equality is, so go is good at so many different levels, including the environmental one. Thank you. Peter? I think this is, uh, is just truly terribly difficult. The complexities involved in understanding supply chains and understanding the sheer fossil fuel debate today, who is on what side, um, a consumer, a producer, um, awfully difficult. It's incredibly easy, it seems, from a distance to be a critic. But being a critic isn't necessarily an answer in itself. I am worried, actually, that quite the opposite of what we would all aspire to may happen if we get the wrong policies on how we deal with this debate. We could may, may well find that we will increase the, the wealth gap between parties as a result of some ineffective, some policies which will be perceived in the short term to be effective, but will actually do long-lasting damage. And I certainly feel for Christiana in the role that she has in coalescing an appropriate series of policy recommendations for politicians, because the risks are very, very high here. But I think it is a social issue. I think there is a justice element, and we all have to do our very, very best to participate in that dialogue to reduce the possibility that this goes horribly wrong from here. Neil. One of the reasons why it's proving so challenging to address climate change is because it's a complex problem. It brings together lots of people who don't normally work together from different parts of the world, or needs to. International, national, regional institutions, the existing ones, have got to evolve to meet these challenges. And there's got to be a recognition that it's going to involve everybody in that process. And part of that is a recognition that some of the ways we've traditionally done business in the way of uh, technology by uh, um, building equipment, selling it and passing it to other areas, um, has got to be changed. There's got to be much freer exchange of information, technology and understanding to improve the economies of, of countries that are developing, to enable them to grow and to prosper, and to ensure that it's done in a fashion which doesn't exacerbate the problems that exist today. Now, whether that will ever result in justice for all, I don't know. I think it's very unlikely. I think it's very challenging. But there has to be a recognition that we're all affected by this, irrespective of where it is happening, and it is in all our interest to help each other to, imp to improve the situation. Thank you. And Christiana. Thank you. I just wanted to add to that um, the social justice piece. I, I come from a developing country, and I spend a lot of my time in developing countries, and I can tell you unequivocally that a degraded environment is the worst multiplier of poverty. So investing in an environment is not a luxury item for developing countries. It is absolutely critical. It is the one thing that gives us any, any chance to develop the social network that is necessary. It is so true that Jim King, the new um, president of the World Bank, has very fundamentally said, unless we are able to address climate, we will never be able to eradicate poverty around the world. So it is very recognized. I've got one last Twitter question here from Jean Leston. Should there be a pilgrimage to Paris 
of faith leaders in 2015. Quick response. Yes, there should be, but it will be all the more powerful if there's massive public backing that's visible to politicians behind them. Peter? Uh, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tempted to say that's a very Anglican response, but you may not be an Anglican, of course. Uh, Neil? <laughs> should that pilgrimage not, not just be faith leaders, but business leaders, finance leaders, health leaders, and all other sections of society? Christiana? And the pilgrimage should not be only in 2015, it should be this year. This is the critical year in which we need to make a difference. If you wait for next year, it'll be too late. Countries will come with a very, very mature text and with very se severely curtailed positions to 2015. If you want to make an impact, this is the year. In conclusion, Christiana, I'd like to take the opportunity of being in the chair now to repeat something which I said in Edinburgh last week. It's rumored that the Pope is about to issue an encyclical on the environment. Do you think Mr. Ban Ki-moon would be inclined to invite the Pope to give that encyclical at the Assembly of the United Nations so that it addressed not just the faith community, but the whole world, and perhaps to have a grand mufti respond uh, to his encyclical so that we can get the message out beyond the walls of this cathedral and uh, beyond those people who have a vested interest in this subject. It is a beautiful idea and one that we have thought uh, and uh, discussed with New York actually quite often. Um, unfortunately, the timings are not going to actually coincide with each other because by the time that encyclical is ready to be published, the General Assembly will have already occurred. However, we are working on an alternative scenario. Well, that's very encouraging. Now, at the beginning, when you gave your lecture, you asked us all to go away with one action in our minds and hearts. So as we come to the end, we're going to pause in this magnificent place, this great space, and in this corporate silence, we'll take a moment for each of us to think of the one action that we can take with us out of the door and into the world. Let's be quiet just for a moment. Ladies and gentlemen, your presence here this evening in such numbers is an encouragement in itself. I'd like on your behalf to thank Peter Pereira Gray Dr. Tony Jupiter, Rear Admiral Neil Morizetti, and especially Her Excellency Christiana Figueres for leading what I think has been one of the most stimulating debates on climate change that I've ever taken part in. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks, James. Hold on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.